I'm going to do my best to not turn this into a um, full-fledged counseling session on the Dallas Cowboys, but I do want to make a quick reference because they are actually germane to this discussion tonight. It is great to be with you guys and to share the word. Before we do, I want to just touch on something real quick. Uh, if you saw the Cowboy game, as I did, uh, you know, something was clearly awry. Something was going wrong that last play. See, for me, it's kind of a deep-held thing because, you know, when I was a kid, much younger than you guys, uh, I had uh, season tickets, and they went 1-15, and, and they were terrible, but I was there. And so a lot of times, like this time of year, we get to January, and I'm accustomed to being terribly disappointed. Can we turn that down a little? Do, I don't know. Is that okay? Is that good? We good? Okay. Uh, a lot of trouble. Anyway, so I get, I'm accustomed to being really disappointed in January, and of course, this January was no different. But the design of the last play, and I'll get to the point here, was truly something that was uh, not going to work. The design was obviously not going to work in, in this way, you know, and I know that some of you might not be into football, so I'll just put it like this. The, you know, the small, fast guys... You know, we put the small kind of fast guy there in the front where you usually put the big fat guys. And then we took all the big fat guys who are usually up front, and we put them where you usually put the small fast guys, okay? And it was like opposite day coming to life in like the most important play for the Cowboys season. And it was obviously a design flaw. And from the moment of the snap, you knew it wasn't going to work. Even my mom who's watching this, she's like, what are they doing? I was like, I, I don't know. It's a bad design. It's not going to work. The Cowboys offense is not the only thing that suffers from a really bad design. Marriage today has got a really uh, bad design. Who knows what percentage of marriages end in divorce today? 50, 50 okay. Well, Oh, that'd be a bad design. If 50% of the time you're failing at something, uh, that's a bad design. Now, how about, okay, first time didn't work out, your second marriage. What percentage of second marriages, now you've got experience, you know what you're doing, what percentage of second marriages end in divorce? 75. Aggressive, 62. 62% of second marriages end in divorce. So maybe there's a design flaw there. How about third time? Third time's the charm, right? First time, you're too young. Second time, you know, you're recovering. Third time's the charm. What percentage of third marriages end in divorce? Any takers? Wow, good job. 73% of Third-time marriages end in divorce. Who's getting divorced? Who's getting divorced? The average age for couples for their first divorce is about 30. So there's the, the, the minefield arises at 30 years old. Uh, wives, listen to this. Wives um, are the ones who most often file for divorce at 66% of the time. So two out of three divorces initiated by the wife. Some years it's 75%. So Three out of four marriages, the filer is the wife. She's had enough and she's leaving. Who can guess the 
the profession with the highest divorce rate? All guesses are good guesses. Military? Military? That's, that's a good guess. It's not the military. <laughs> well, okay, easy now. <laughs> easy. <laughs> no. Wrong. That's a bad guess. Okay. We're close. Dancers. Dancers are the most likely. If you're going to go be a dancer, that's not going to be good for your marriage. Bartenders come in at the second most frequently divorced profession. That is a profession for me. And massage therapists. A lot of them get divorced. You know, what? how about the, what, what profession can you go into that minimizes your, your likelihood of getting a divorce? Like the least um, divorce-ridden profession out there. Any guesses? That's a great guess. <laughs> teacher, okay. Marriage counselor, you'd think so. <laughs> the least likely profession to get a divorce are farmers. Go figure. They know hard work. So today's marriage, even worse than the Cowboys offense, is not designed to win. So our title for our time together is God's Design for Marriage. God's Design for Marriage. We all know the theme of Ephesians. Who can give it to us? Trick question. There's two. What's the theme of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians? You all know it? Yeah. Perfect. In uh, him, our position in Christ or the eternal plan of God. Our passage for today is Ephesians 5, 22 to 44. Uh, I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll, then we'll pray and get going. So Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. You are sufficient for us. You're all we need. You're all we want. And you're all we have. In your name we pray. Amen. So quickly, the background on Ephesians. We've talked about this before. Where, where is, uh, th this is a letter to the church in Ephesus. Where is modern day Ephesus? All together now. Oh, you know. Where is modern day Ephesus? This letter was directed to the church in Ephesus, which is now located in the country of a NATO ally. Want to be in the EU, but can't get in. Muslim country. Thank you. Who said that? Good job. Okay, so that's the, that, that is where Ephesus is today. It was written by Paul to Timothy, who was left there to pastor. Uh, and he's pastoring them, and they had struggled with issues around the teaching of the law. They had been faithful. They persevered, and on the whole, it was a church that was doing well, and in this part of the letter, uh, Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, Timothy, be sure you tell them that the marriage relationship is not really just about the boy and the girl. The marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and his church. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The first point is the general attitude. The general attitude. 
And really this, this passage starts with verse 21, which Justin covered very briefly last week. I'm going to read you verse 21. Uh, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's chapter 5, verse 21. And Justin explained as part of that section, which, which precedes, which leads into the section that we're going to talk about, that section was all about uh, practicing our holiness, practicing holiness in your personal lives. You guys remember that? And he gave you several points uh, when he was talking to you about Ephesians 4, 17 to 5, 21. Who can give me one of the points that Justin gave you guys just a few days ago? Yes. Say that again. Yeah, that was speaking truth. Yes, that, that good. That, that was one of them. Who, who's got another one? Just a few days ago, just turn back in your little journals. Yeah. Be careful, Be careful how you walk. Okay, he talked about putting on the new self. Remember, because if you want to walk in personal holiness, what you've got to put on the new self. You guys remember that? You've got to take off the old self, right? That makes sense? That ring a bell? He also talked about walking as imitators of God. You've got to walk as an imitator of God. You've got to walk as children of the light. You've got to walk as men of wisdom. You guys remember those main points in the preceding section? And so the reason I'm trying to remind you of that is all of that, all of those ways in which Paul is instructing the believer to walk in personal holiness, they all kind of amount to this verse that he's, gonna, that, that he's sharing and telling Timothy to instruct them on, which is be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's like the last point, okay? So it's like, it is put on the new self, be imitators of God, be children of the light, walk in wisdom. And then Paul concludes with, he's like, you know, if you tune me out, listen to this, Paul's saying. Listen to this last final important point. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Why is that so important? Why is that his, his capstone point, his summary point for everybody to, to keep in mind? It is, it is a directive. It guides this whole prior section being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the obvious question there. If it's so important being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, what does that mean? And this is directly related to what we're going to spend our time talking to about, talking about today. What does it mean to be subject to another? What does it mean to be subject to one another? Anybody have a sense of what that means? You guys are an educated group. What does that mean to be subject to another? Any takers? Yes. Be accountable, okay. And be accountable to somebody else. Any other ideas? Yes, sir. To serve one another. Yeah, there's an, there, there's an attitude of service to one another. Anybody else? What's that mean? Ever think about that? What does that mean to be subject to one another? How can we be subject to one another? It means to be led, to be guided willingly. Joyfully, to be guided by another person, to follow another person's lead. Uh, let me put it this way. I'm just going to read this to you. To be subject, it's a Greek military term. The word is for the Greek military, um, meaning to arrange your troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader, to be subject. 
So think of a military movement, choreographed, okay, in unison, moving together. In a non-military sense, it's like a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility, of carrying a burden. Okay, so we're all kind of in this together, and we're going to be subject to one another. And in certain respects, today, right now, we're all kind of subject to one another. Like Justin's not even here. I could talk about Marvel movies and how it all is biblical. I could do all that, but that wouldn't be subject to Justin. I am, I am subject to him, so I'm going to, to, to handle this trust in a way that, that honors his leadership of the youth group. You guys are all subject to the expectations that you're going to sit there patiently until I'm done. So you're all kind of subject to one another and, and to me and to each other, and then you'll be subject to your to your uh, small group leader when you go off to small groups. So we're all kind of here subject to one another as, as we kind of move with an understanding and a humility uh, expressed to one another. It's a deference to one another. Now, it's like you're not going to insist on your way. You're going to just kind of act peaceably with each other, humbly. You think about it like this. I, I was on a cruise, and unfortunately, I witnessed line dancing. I hate line dancing. I don't see why people line dance. But, but, but there we were in the, in the bright sun and everybody's out there and like the music came on and they're going and they're going hard. It's like 50 of them and they're all like in perfect choreographed unison. I don't even, it was like there was, some of them are like sweating like they're going for like America's got talent. Some of them are, you know, they got it but it's like this perfectly choreographed Movement of kids and adults and men and women and, and sweating hard. I mean, it was gross. Uh, but I was like, did they meet on like the, the, the shuffleboard deck or something and learn this? I mean, it was, it was all of them working in unison, choreographed, subject to one another, making room. A big old line dance. I don't recommend it, but that was a picture of what it means to be subject to one another. All giving each other room and... Line dancing. So that's what it means to be in a community, a big community. The whole community is subject to one another as they're kind of working in cooperation, moving together, humbly, accounting for one another. That's Paul's, that's Paul's general command. Be subject to one another in fear of the Lord. Now there's a specific command. Your next point is Paul's specific command. Verse 22, wives... Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, this isn't to the community. This is to wives. If the community is line dancing, everybody be subject to one another. This is wives be subject to your husbands. This is one-on-one. -on -one. You guys ever go to Cotillion? I didn't like going to Cotillion when I was a kid. I, I had to go. Do you guys ever go? Any Cotillion people here? You guys know what Cotillion is? Braven went to Cotillion. Who here has been to Cotillion? Wow. Bless you, your parents. <laughs> I'll just tell you, Cotillion's this thing you do to kids when they're bad. No, um, you, you send them to this thing and like they learn manners and, uh, and they learn how to like waltz and, 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 and foxtrot and, 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 and tango and all this stuff when they're like in middle school. And uh, it's still a thing that's out there today. I had to go and I had to waltz. I had to learn to waltz. And I know that sounds awesome, but it wasn't. And so, but when you, but when you learn to do that, right, 
It's not a group waltzing. It's not like a line dance. It's just one-on-one. And there's a, somebody who leads, somebody who follows. It's choreographed. If you both decide you're going to lead, you're not going to waltz for very long. It doesn't work like that. Okay, you can't dance when you're both going to lead. You got to have a role and you got to fill your role. And that's what we did at Cotillion. And so Paul's saying here, this is a specific instruction to two specific people, one-on-one. This isn't for the group. Okay, so, if, so that, that is his specific command. How do we make this work, though? How you, and they got two people, you have a choreographed, uh, approach, how are we going to do this? Because we have a problem. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So you're going to have one be subject to the other. Now this is a problem. Why is this a problem? This is a big problem because of Genesis chapter 3 uh, verses, uh, verse 12 and 13. Uh, the man said, you guys remember this, the fall, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, you guys remember the story, of course, and we've got a big problem. Uh, they're there in the garden. And the man said, after they, they ate of the fruit that was forbidden, the woman, you know, God is asking Adam, what happened here? Well, the woman you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the certain deceived me and I ate. And so they're kind of, you know, it, it's already not going well. They're, they're at loggerheads, and we have sin entering the picture. So how are we going to have this design? Are we going to talk about God's design for marriage when we're talking about two people who are both dealing with a fatal condition of sin, of a sinful environment? So how's God's design going to work in this sinful environment? So again, Paul's instruction, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now let me ask you, actually, let, let, let me tell you this before we get into some of the specific language. You know, Pastor Tom likes to say, well, let me tell you what this is not. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to tell you what this is not. Hey, this is not a directive or an instruction to women generally. This is not directed to women. This is directed to wives. There are only a few wives here. Uh, there are a lot of women here, a lot of young women Uh, this is directed to wives. So this is not Paul's view on women generally. This is not addressed to girls broadly. It's addressed to wives as a role. It's not an instruction for women to be subject to men. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about wives, not women. And it's not a command for girls to be subject to boys. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that girls are subject to boys or that women are subject to men. How could that even be? How could he be saying that? Of course he's not saying that. How could you be subject to somebody you don't even know? How can you be subject to somebody that you're not devoted to? How could you be subject to somebody who's not devoted to you? See, God's design is all about intimacy and devotion and commitment. So this can't be a directive to women generally because women generally are not subject to men generally just because there's no commitment, devotion. There's no intimacy there. So Paul is not talking to women generally. He's not talking to girls broadly. He's not saying that they're subject to men. And of course, we all know that, right? There's no confusion on that, right? Right. That's, we're good there. Now, this is also, um, this is also not any kind of limitation on professional ambition, on academic ambition. 
Some of you women, some of any of you, may, you may want to go be a brain surgeon. Maybe you want to go be an engineer. Maybe you want to go be uh, an astronaut. Uh, I was at the Johnson Space Center, and I thought the whole thing, I mean, that's the most terrifying job ever, be an astronaut, but maybe you want to do that. Maybe you've got the brains for that. You can do math. Uh, this is not a limitation on your academic ambition. You want to go be a lawyer, you'll be the Chief Justice of the United States. You want to go be the President, I mean, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you want to do that, like, more power to you. This is not Paul speaking to and limiting in any way what your professional aspirations are, whether it's going to be an artist, a musician, knock yourself out. That is not Paul's point. If you want to be, hey, if you want to work at home, if you want to raise a family, devote yourself entirely to that, that's not what Paul's talking about. So, that is not what he is saying. That is not what he is saying. It doesn't limit any of that. Whatever your life's ambitions, it shouldn't be limited by a misunderstanding of that verse. Right? That makes sense? That makes sense? Okay. So what, this, what is this? If it's not that. What is this? So what, what is Paul saying? This is directed to wives, a very specific group. What is a wife? Let's think about that. What is, it? What is the definition of a wife? I, I mean, what, you guys got a definition for me? Somebody want to take a, take a flyer here? Somebody give me a definition for a wife. Think about that. What is a wife? I mean, I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just actually wondering, like, what, how would you define wife? Like, you can't say, well, someone who makes me breakfast, that's the definition of a mom. <laughs> yeah. Okay, one woman who's married to one man. That is technically a wife. Very, very, that's, that's baseball, right? Yeah, what, what do you got? Somebody who makes you happy. Okay, so we got one woman married who makes somebody happy. What else? Let's build this out. Work with me here. What do you got? You guys got any ideas? No? I don't know. Don't look at me. What do we got? A man's partner. A man's partner. Okay. That's a, you guys, ladies, you see that? It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Take a bow. Okay, guys, yeah. A man's helper. Thank you. We got partners. We got helpers. One woman, one man. Make you happy. What else? Anything else? That it? Yeah. A friend. Yes, this person, sh a wife should be a friend. An advisor. an advisor, very good answer, very good answer. Yeah, Proverbs 31, you want to have a good advisor. Yeah, loyal. a loyal person. Yeah, you got an advisor, you got a loyal advisor who's a friend, who's a partner, who is a woman, who makes you happy. <laughs> Anything else? Yes, sir. An encourager. Guy, you know what, man? You're going to need a lot of encouragement. A life can be hard, and you want encouragement. You don't want discouragement, especially right there in the home. It is really important you've got a consistent voice of encouragement in your home. So, yeah, a wife is an encourager. Does that exhaust our definition of a wife? Is that it? Why, why are you nodding your head like that? What's that? Oh, there's like a financial deal? Okay. 
So she's an asset. Like, what do you even mean? Like, she's an asset, not liability. I, want, uh, I, I am not making this observation. I just want this to reflect that. This is from the crowd. Go ahead. What do you mean, even? So, so someone who knows how to use their money wisely okay. is an asset. Yes. Someone who spends money on stuff that isn't necessary is a liability. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That was good. I'm not going to repeat any of that, but yes. You guys are hitting on Hosea 1 to 3, Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13, Ephesians 5.18, 2 Corinthians, 1 Peter, Proverbs 31. You guys are hitting on those things. That's the definition of a wife. And it's important to keep all that in mind because this passage, as I said, is directed to wives, not women, not girls broadly, but to a specific function, a specific role uh, that women some women decide voluntarily as an act of love intentionally to take those steps. Decision to trust somebody else to kind of lead that dance called marriage, God's design. It's not addressed to husbands. This is, this is directed to wives. It's to the decision of submitting. This is directed to the person who's doing the submitting. And um, it's important to keep that in mind because... Paul, you know, wives be subject to your husbands uh, because they're the ones doing the submitting. But Paul's not saying, hey, husbands, sub subject your wives to yourself. We, we, we don't do that. That's not how it works. It is the wife voluntarily, lovingly, of her volition, of her devotion to the Lord, engaging in the act of submission. It's not the husband persuading the wife that you need to really be submissive. That's not directed to the husband at all. This is directed to the wife because you can't subject another person to you. That's not how we roll in Christianity. That's not, that's not Jesus' way. So this is directed, addressed to the wife. Be subject to your own husbands. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, and I hope you are, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses uh, uh, 22 to 24. I hope you're looking at that verse 22. If you are, is your version of uh, be subject, uh, italicized. Is it? It is, right? Why is that? Why is that? Well, why is that italicized there? You guys know? It wasn't originally in the Greek, right? Excellent answer. So that must mean that wives are not to be subject to their husbands. It went there. Who put it there? Right? Well, how, how? That's exactly right. So it wasn't there. So how, how did, why is it there in italics? Because of the verse we were just talking about, verse 21. Because if you look at verse 21, what does verse 21 say? Verse 21 says, and be subject to one another. It is in verse 21. See, in verse 21, when you read it, it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, it literally would say, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So, but they just kind of added the italics, be subject, to make it more clear because it's clearly drawing on verse 21 to say, this is what we're talking about here. So that's why it's italicized in um, verse 22. So it's implied. So it's getting its context from the prior verse, and that's why we want to talk about it in the way that we, we did. So he's transitioning from speaking 
uh, to generally to the group tonight speaking specifically in the home. And let's remember what it means to be subject, because that's implied here. Wives, be subject to your husbands. We talked about, it's like that Greek military term, we're going to work in unison. We're going to defer to one another. We're going to allow ourselves to be led. There's no compulsion. You know, notice this. You can read the whole letter, not just the parts we're covering. There's no guidance as to like, okay, well, um, here's what to do if she decides to not submit to your leadership. It's not there. It's totally voluntary. It can't be brought about by compulsion or persuasion. It's an inner attitude directed to the Lord. There's no guidance as to what Paul says to do if it doesn't work out that way. So, ladies, it's a gift that you uniquely possess and you uniquely can offer. So now once you decide, hey, I'm ready to be the wife to Mr. Wright. I found Mr. Wright and he's just amazing and I'm ready. Uh, that means you're ready for this to apply to you. Like right now, that apply to you because you're not a wife to anybody. But once you decide you want to get married, then you better be sure you're ready to um, engage and to, to, to approach this passage in all the seriousness that, that, that it has. Are you ready to be subject to that person? Are you ready to be led? Are you ready to waltz? So you can't both lead if you're going to dance. You're going to have to let them lead. That's God's design. We already talked about the world's design for marriage ain't working. So God's design uh, will work, but you've got to do it on his terms. And, and what he is saying is that when you do take that step, you need to be prepared for that other person to lead. That's what it means to be subject. You've got to follow his lead. Now think about that. Meditate on that. Let that focus your mind. If you're going to get married to somebody, you're going to be prepared for that person to kind of lead this waltz. So you're going to be subject to that person. Who is this person spiritually? Who is he? Who is he in Christ? Is he growing? Uh, do I see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in him? Is he devoted to leading in a biblical, spiritual, devoted, tender, persistent, faithful way? Who is this guy? You've got to think about these things in connection with devoting yourself, devoting your time, opening your heart. Uh, to somebody because that is what that means to be subject to someone. So if you're going to enter into a, a relationship where you're going to voluntarily, lovingly trust and encourage the leadership of another person over yourself, you're going to follow their lead. So you got to make sure they're eager to get to the same place you want to go. So if your devotion, if you are devoted to the Lord and you want to grow in your faith, you want to grow in fellowship with him. You want to grow a biblical home. You want to grow kids who love and honor and serve him. If that is your objective, well, then you need to make sure the person you're going to invest in is going to lead in that direction, okay? So, so don't think you're going to start waltzing with somebody who's only done line dancing, okay? You've got to make sure that they are going to lead in that way. Otherwise, you're not going to get to where you're hoping and praying to go. Now, let's talk about... Um, you know, well, I, before we did, I was, to give you an illustration here, I was in Jerusalem once, and, um, and there was a guide, and I, we came out of our hotel, and as soon as you come out of the hotel in this part of Jerusalem where we were staying, and uh, they're just like on you, like going to be your tour guide, 
And I felt bad for this guy. He was giving me this whole sob story about Palestinians and they can't get tour, tour guide jobs. So I was like, all right, well, fine. And, um, and so he's our tour guide. So we put ourselves under his leadership. He's going to lead us. And we're going to follow. And um, every stop for the day, we like ended up going. It was like, you know, he had a relative selling us something. You know, so I'm kind of feeling like I don't feel like we're getting the authentic Jerusalem experience here. And then it ended with, I kid you not, we were at like a Holiday Inn Express. And, he, and he's like, this is where there was the, the Last Supper. I was like, I, I, don't, I don't think it was here. He's like, it was right, right here, like in the lobby. I was like, I, I, but we put ourselves under his leadership. And when he, we got, so, so we trusted the wrong guys, we went to the wrong place. Okay? So if you want to get to the right place, you got to trust the right person. They're going to lead you where you want to go. They, they will be leading you. If they're going to lead you, you have to subject yourself to them as to the Lord. Now, this is the key, the power, the strength that holds it all together. You're not merely submitting to one another. You're not merely submitting to the husband as a wife. You're submitting as to the Lord in humility. It's, it's an act of worship to the Lord. Now, whether or not your spouse is acting in a way that you feel like this is deserving of submission, you're actually submitting to the Lord because there will be times... My wife doesn't have any examples of this, but where you feel like, what is going on? Like, I don't want, this person doesn't have, they can't, they don't have two cents to wrap, like, what's, what's wrong with this person? I think they've gone crazy. Um, it happens sometimes, and but your act of submission is to the Lord, not to that person. You're agreeing to submit as wife as to the Lord. Now, in that sense, if you're submitting to somebody as to the Lord, you want to make sure that this person who you are trusting in, in a leadership position, you want to make sure that they know that that's what you're doing. They got to get it. They got to know that, that in your faithfulness, in your act of worship to the Lord, you, it, it's an act of, of an expression of love. It's a voluntary act of love. And you want to make sure that, that they know that. Like they got to understand their role, but they also got to understand your role. And so that's part of, of why it's important that, that, you, that they appreciate God's design and that the marriage picture is a picture of the church. That's why it's important to marry somebody with whom you're equally yoked. That you should, that you should if you're going to invest time, if you're going to invest in relationships, you should do so with people with whom you're equally yoked. You guys know what I mean by that? Equally yoked? You know, um, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's being equally yoked. And so you want to ensure that if you're going to engage, if you're going to have that, if you're going to live that dance, that the person who's going to lead you understands your role and their role. Third point is the marital picture. The marital picture. Verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, just as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So 
he starts with, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. So again, it's not directed to a man. It's not directed to men. Generally, a man is not the head of the woman. You'll, you'll forgive me for repeating myself, but that's what Paul is again saying here. So it's not that men generally are, are the head of anything. It's husbands and wives specifically. It's a relationship. It's a love relationship that models and mirrors Christ in the church. That is the model, Christ and the church. It's, see, it, it's the most intimate. It is the most defining relationship in your life. And so when the two come together as husband and wife, you're talking about a relationship of submitting one to the other. I mean, there's no worldly example of the marital relationship that is so, that so perfectly captures the essence of it as Christ and the church. Jesus is very serious. God is very serious about us understanding the seriousness of marriage, and that's why he uses an illustration of Christ and the church. Okay, that's why, uh, so when the Bible says the man is the head of the wife, what does that mean? You're going to get more into this next time in verses 25 and on. When the man is the head of the wife, you're to lead her. You're to protect, to guide, to provide. That is what it means for the man to be the head of the wife. So if you're in that most intimate and tender relationship, you got to look to one example. There's no humanistic examples. It's only the Lord and his church. So if you've got an issue in your marriage, what do you do? You you just looked, what, what, would, what would Christ and his church do? We got an issue, how do we resolve it? What would Christ and his church do? About uh, solving and, and finding a way forward. So, ensure that you're pursuing or considering marriage with somebody who gets it and sees the same picture, wants to dance the same tune. Paul goes on as Christ is also head of the church. So the home is a church. The home is supposed to be a church. It's where you learn about salvation. That's where your most intimate real place, where you really like your hair down. That's where it's at. But it's, it's got to have order. It's got to have structure in this small church. It's got a leader. And the husband is called to be the leader of that home as Christ is head of the church, as Christ leads the church. That person is going to aspire to lead the home. So when you're doing, when you're going through this process of considering marriage, because it is so serious, you've got to think, as I said, what, who is this person? How are they growing? Are they devoted to the word? For example, for example, like my favorite thing to do in the morning is I get up, go to the kitchen, and I go to my lovely Nespresso machine. And I crank that thing up, and it has worked for me every morning for I don't know how long. But I just love it. I love it. It's part of the reason I like getting out of bed in the morning. And uh, it hadn't changed on me. Not yet. But Sometimes it makes this weird noise, and, and I worry um, that, you know, one day it's going to break, and I'm going to be stranded, and I'll have to use, like, the Keurig machine or, or something else. But, but there it is. And if it ever gives up on me, you know what I've got? I've got my Nespresso owner's manual with my warranty information because they made certain promises to me when they sold me that Nespresso machine. So I keep this. Because that inspection machine means a lot to me. Now, if you want to take a flyer and invest in a relationship, okay, and pursue love and so on and so forth with somebody who is not steeped and rooted in the Word of God, you got no warranties. 
they're going to grow and they're going to change and they're going to feel differently. And what are you going to point to? What are you going to claim? What are you going to say? What are you going to draw them back to to say, wait a second, wait a second. This is who you were. Like you, th- this is not changeable. We all change. You want them to change. You want them to act like they're 17 forever. God forbid. You, you want them to change. You want to grow in wisdom and grow in, in knowledge and grow in earning capacity. But, but you don't want them to grow away from the Lord. You want them to go deeper in the Lord, right? And so you want to ensure that you've got a warranty. This is your warranty, okay? So that whenever they go bonkers, you can be like, hey, wait a second. Wait a second, bud. Remember this? You draw them back. Because if you, if you want to pursue somebody who isn't in Christ, you got no warranty. All bets are off. And whatever way the wind blows, it blows. And that's why you got 50% divorce, 60% divorce, 70% divorce. So you got to be sure you got a warranty. Now, he himself being Savior of the body, Jesus is Savior of the body. We know what that means, that Jesus has saved the church. He has delivered the church from punishment for our sin. And it looks, uh, what's it mean? What's it mean for, for, for the husband to be the savior of the body, like Jesus is savior of the church? It means that the husband protects and provides and guides and, and has a sacrificial love for the family in the same way that the Lord Jesus did. Now, verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. The church is subject to Christ. That's a high standard. Uh, but how do you handle this? You want guidance, direction. Um, what would the redeemed church do in response to Christ? That's how you respond uh, to your husband. It's a big task. It's a high calling, especially because you're called to copy someone uh, who is a much better companion uh, than you. So the church is subject to Christ, who obviously deserves all of us to be subject to him because he's worthy He's deserving of, of our submission, and he's unrivaled for our attention and love. And you'll occasionally encounter a situation where uh, your spouse might not be so deserving of that uh, deference, of that submission. But, we, but, but you do so in worship to the Lord. You do so in acknowledgement of the Lord. And I'll tell you, the... Uh, the, uh, a friend of mine came to me one day, and uh, I may have told you this already, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but he sat down in my chair, you know, he closed the door, sat in my office, and it was really just broke down, really upset, and, um, and uh, he, he says he's getting divorced. He's like, man, and, and, and he's really just crushed. He's like, divorce is so hard, so hard. Like, well, you think marriage is hard, divorce is harder. So you want to follow God's design because the world's design it is not only hard, but it has failed. So follow God's design. Let's cut, talk about a couple of application points. God's design is for us to be subject to one another, as we said in verse 21. We got to be subject to one another. Are you willing to be subject to those around you? Or, 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 or do you have a pattern of insisting on getting your way, getting the last word? Let's be subject to one another, peaceably, humbly, in the home, it is for the role of a wife in a voluntary, humble act of worship to the Lord as an expression for her Lord and for her family to allow her husband to lead, to lead that waltz of life. Now, this says nothing about who has greater wisdom, 
who has greater ability, who has greater judgment, who's the best advisor, who can manage the money. It doesn't say anything about that. All those things may be the woman. But as far as a uh, leadership picture, leadership picture in the home, God has called that to the man. Now, let me ask you, are you getting rooted in the Word so that you know how to imitate God's design for marriage? Because you've got to be rooted in the Word if you want to live a life uh, that has a home and a marriage that captures his picture. Are you learning his word, sacrificing for others, putting yourself second? Those are all things you're called to do in marriage. So I'm going to leave you with this. When you think of leadership in the home, and you say the wife is to be subject to the husband, you know, the, the husband is called to serve and to love, uh, and really in, in a sacrificial way, the wife in the home. And, and the example, of course, is our Lord Jesus. So what does it mean to be the Savior of the body? What does it mean to, to lead the home? What does it mean to be, uh, to be the husband in a home? In John uh, chapter 13, Jesus gave us the most beautiful example of what it means to be the husband. Now, I mean, listen to, listen to, to uh, this passage in Jesus' Acts here. Now, before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with his towel with which he was girded. He washed their feet. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. That is the leadership in the home that a wife is called to submit to. So one day when you're wives, you should be ready to have your feet washed. Make sure that you are considering relationships with people, with a, with a man who knows how to wash feet. That is the picture of what it means to lead in the home. It is the picture that the Lord Jesus uh, has given us. That is who we are called to submit to and how we are called to submit. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, there's none like you, but I pray that you would allow us to be just a faint picture of your perfect love for one another in homes and in our lives that we'd be subject to one another, loving one another, humbly accounting for one another and serving one another. We pray for all of these things through your most holy name. Amen.